I guess when the music kicks off, that's my cue. All right. We're glad that you're here with us this morning, and uh, some of you remember to set your clocks back. Uh, the rest of them that will be coming in here in a little bit, well, actually, I think they would have already been here, hadn't they? But uh, in any case, I never can remember how that all works, but uh, we're glad that you're with us here this morning and uh, looking forward to starting the time together in worship with you and uh, look at what God has in store for us. It's been a busy three weeks in the last three weeks and appreciate your attendance throughout those Sundays, interacting with our missionaries and hope that you will continue to be in prayer for them as they uh, continue to serve and as we have opportunities also to minister to them. And uh, so grateful for uh, the, the reminders as well as the, the challenge of remembering our global mission and what it is that God has for us. There's a few things in your bulletin I just want to draw your attention to because obviously we know that you go home and you read this and you get your dictionaries out and, and cycle, I mean, you really analyze the bulletin every Sunday. I know that. And uh, by the basis of how many are left in the pew, I know that, all right? Uh, but at the same point, I want to just make sure that you are aware we have several things happening. And one of those is that we have our quarterly me meeting today at uh, 4 o'clock. It's here in this room and uh, be gathered here again. And then Awana will be meeting at the normal time, 5.30. And uh, so uh, this evening is a way for us to update get you apprised and uh, we'll be having some time to talk about our building project and all these different things uh, that are up and coming. So hope that you'll plan to be back tonight, uh, this afternoon at four o'clock and uh, we'll inform you of those things. As well, uh, there is the Operation Christmas Child. Our church has historically tried to do this almost every year and uh, there are these shoebox style boxes that are available but uh, you are not required to use these in order to participate. Uh, if you find another shoebox, it needs to be in similar dimension, uh, but some people have found little Rubbermaids and others have used you know, other types of shoeboxes. Uh, if you are able to help with this, I hope that uh, you'll take one if you need one from our uh, supply or find one. And uh, you can go online to Operation Christmas Child's website and uh, they can help you understand you know, what you should not as much as what are suggested items as to what you can put into uh, these boxes. It's a way for us to encourage those in other parts of the world and take part in this very helpful and uh, refreshing ministry. Uh, inside of there as well, there's other news that uh, we want to make sure that you're aware of, and that is that to beginning today, we have three electives that are beginning. One is with Steve Lyons, who is exploring Proverbs, and uh, I know that you will be encouraged by that if you choose to go. Another one is being led by David Prairie here at the end of things, talking about end times, but not in such a way as you might think. Uh, it's a, a real challenge understanding our place in Christ's economy, understanding what it is to be the church. And uh, so I hope that you'll take a moment and, and consider that one as well. Fred Bennett in his class is going to be talking about the Feast of Israel. So uh, really a, a look at those different uh, key points in the Jewish calendar that really have a lot of messianic overtones. And I know that uh, you'll be greatly encouraged by that as well. And those that are kind of you're, you're kind of in and out and you're saying, well, I'm not really sure that I can, you know, uh, find time to get into one of these. In here, we'll be doing what's called a sermon in review. And uh, there will be a, a few of us men that will be leading that uh, each Sunday. And uh, that's a time for us to kind of look back over what we've heard in the morning's message as uh, we go through the weeks ahead. And so that will be a time here in the auditorium. And uh, so if those, any of those strike your fancy as well as the other classes that are still ongoing, uh, other Sunday school classes, I hope that uh, you'll take a moment and consider that. If you have any specific questions about that, Kelly O'Rear, 
our discipleship pastor will be standing out there in the foyer, and uh, he'll be more than happy to fill you in on all the details of these different electives. As well, out there in the foyer, you're going to find in, the, uh, in this next hour after the service, Amy O'Rear will be teaching, and uh, this is the last week for this particular set of lessons. And then in two weeks, again, there'll be another uh, time of study there in the foyer as well with the other ladies. And so uh, make sure that you're aware of that. If you have any questions about that, you can talk to Amy, you can talk to Kelly O'Rear about that as well. Grace groups. Some have been asking about when are grace groups going to start again, and uh, there is a sign-up list. We're going to begin those, and uh, we have some host homes and different individuals that are willing to lead, and uh, if you're interested in getting involved with a small group and getting invested again in Bible study and fellowship, uh, a little bit more of a microcosm of what we experience here in the grander scheme of things, uh, that is something that's available to you, and uh, there's a sign-up list for that out there in the foyer as well. So a lot of things in the foyer. So I hope that uh, you'll take a moment, stop, look at the tables, make sure that uh, you're aware of all that's happening. Staff, staff welcome lunch. There's a ladies retreat. There's a mission trip to the DR. There's a food drive. I, I'm already worn out and I've just started reading. All right. So uh, make sure that you take note of these different opportunities that we have to focus in on ministry opportunities, to discipleship, to serve, to reach but also just to be aware that there are things happening outside of just what happens in here on Sunday morning. And I hope that uh, you'll take opportunity to do that. Don't forget, right after our morning worship time here, we have a fellowship time in the, in the middle of this, and then we have our second hour. That's when we do our discipleship time. That's our, our classes, our electives. And I hope that uh, you'll get invested in those, get to know people, be uh, a part of also letting the Word of God continue to expand your understanding of who He is and how you have a relationship with him. And I hope that we'll continue to grow in these things together. Well, like I said, there's several other things there, uh, a few other details that are especially in the coming up section. And uh, so I hope that uh, you'll take a moment, fill those in, in your hearts and minds. And uh, there's even a handy dandy drawing map uh, you can hand this to your wife and let her draw on this while I'm preaching, and uh, that would be perfectly fine. All right. Well, we're glad that you're with us here this morning, and we're going to begin at our time of worship. I appreciate Fred and the choir and our musicians and everyone that helps us begin in this first part as we open our hearts to in song. And as a church as well, our emphasis is upon the Word of God and the, the value of what His Word means in our lives. And so we're going to stand together as a church, if you would, and we're going to be looking at a verse that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as a way of thinking about our participation in the gospel and how it is that we also are partakers and we share in what Jesus Christ is doing around the world. And uh, so thinking about this thought and this verse as we come into our next pillar, uh, the pillar of evangelism, and thinking about what Paul is emphasizing here, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 23. I'd like for us to say this together. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what Paul is really saying there. Maybe open that passage up this afternoon or this evening. What does it mean to be one who is doing all things for the sake of the gospel, but also to be a fellow partaker? What does that mean? What is Paul saying? And may God continue to impress upon us the value of not just being hoarders of the gospel, appreciative of what God has given to us, but may we be very free and liberal with how we share it and how we live it. Father, I pray that you will bless our time here this morning. And Lord, there are people that are just not able to be here today. And 
Lord, we're mindful of their physical condition. We're mindful of the challenges that are going on in their world, maybe even some spiritual battles that have afforded opportunity to say that uh, I can take a time of pause and not necessarily be challenged by those who know me well and who are instruments of grace in my life. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would be mindful of our opportunity to be partakers as well as participants in as we share in what the gospel is doing in our life. Lord, I pray that you will model your grace to us through the ministry of your spirit, even this morning as we ponder and as we consider what it is that the gospel is doing in our hearts and lives. May you be magnified and glorified in everything that we do and say here today. And so, Lord, lift your name in our hearts and minds. May you be magnified and glorified. And Lord, may you be esteemed as worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Would you stand with me as we sing together this morning? Thankful this morning that we can praise the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three in one. We're thankful that we can praise him this morning. Would you join me as we sing together? Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Surely his goodness and 
praise the Lord. Christ our hope in life and death.
it is to stand here and sing before you today. I thank you for this group of people that have gathered today. Lord, may our hearts be hungry for your word. And as Adam comes to share that this morning, may you just encourage us to be more passionate and loving and that our hearts would be bent toward you and molded to be like you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I get the privilege of being here on the front and hearing all that coming towards us up here. And I appreciate the the vitality of our singing this morning. It was encouraged in my heart as I was listening, thinking about uh, the goodness of our God and sufficiency of his sacrifice and the hope that we share in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's that partnership, that's that fellowship that we share. I'd like for you to go with me to the book of 1 Peter this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, we are looking again at this series of thoughts that uh, we've started in the course of this year and attempting to call us to remember our mission and our purpose as a church, as a people, and kind of summarizing them in these four pillars that we'll look at in just a minute. But I want to read First Peter chapter 3 here as a way of introducing the thought this morning. It's found in verse 13 and read down to verse 17. First Peter 3 and verse 13. It says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, and yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you were slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is wrong. So we've been looking at these pillars over the last several weeks and months, close to a part of, good part of this year. We've been emphasizing these four pillars, the first one being worship and understanding that we have been called by a people into a place of sincere worship. And that's something that we can try to manufacture each and every Sunday morning we walk in. Or it could be better stated that worship is not a momentary experience, it's a lifelong expression. It's the understanding that we live our lives in such a way where God is our expression. That when people see us, they see the person of God, the person of Christ at work in us. And from the youngest in the church to the eldest, they're begging the question, do you live with God on your tongue and is he the fingerprints that you leave behind? That's really what life for the believer is really meant to be. And from worship, then we understand a purpose. And from that purpose, our purpose is defined as being that we are being and making other disciples of Jesus Christ. 
And so we've been talking about this fact that we choose the narrow path because it falls in behind one singular person versus the broad path that every person is trying to find their own way, to find their own purpose in life. We have found our exclusive purpose, and that is behind one person, Jesus Christ, and we follow hard after him. And being a disciple of Jesus Christ then means that we are believing in the sufficient sacrifice of Christ for our lives. And that puts us then within a select group, within the body of Christ. And we are individually a part of something called the church. And that's what we were talking about in depth when we were talking about our fellowship. This is what we have, is what we call our fellowship. We partner together. We come together. We do life together because life is hard. And it's difficult and we find ourselves in situations of life and we are tempted many times to withdraw from these people because they are the ones who know us the best. And sometimes we want to live in anonymity. Christ has called us into something called the church. And we fellowship together. We enjoy life together. We, we are together because of who and what we share in the person of Jesus Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are brought into proximity and in to be a taste within our community of what heaven is one day going to look like. Imagine that. And now today we come to the last of our pillars. Looking today and starting to look this morning at the topic of the thought of evangelism. And anytime we have opportunity to hear from others who are serving the body of Christ in distant parts of the world, we are reminded of the consequences of submission. And today as well, we are giving attention to those who are suffering because of their faith in Christ. And so this morning, I'd like to take that thought, fear in suffering, and think about how that oftentimes stymies or stunts our opportunities or willingness to be the message bringers, the witness bearers that Christ has called us to be as his people. We're giving attention to those who are suffering because of their faith in Christ But what about the fear in suffering? Sometimes it is suffering as a message bringer breaking into a culture that is hostile towards the gospel. But other times it is suffering from within your own culture as you seek to live out what Christ has been doing and living out your faith in front of everybody that just knows you, that assumes because you're an American, you do it the way the Americans do it. That if you're from South America, you do it the way that the South Americans do it. That if you're from Europe, you do it the way that the Europeans do it, and so forth and so forth around the world. And we find that people are suffering because they're willing to put Christ on their tongue and leaving the fingerprints of God wherever they go. One of the biggest deterrents to sharing the faith many times is the fear of what will happen if I live out my faith in a public manner. Fear of what others might do to me or say about me or the consequences of being open and bold in front of others. And sometimes there is simply a fear of sharing the truth during a a difficult conversation. Or amongst people who have known me a long time, maybe in my entire life, but maybe they've never become in tune with the reality of what Christ has been doing in my life, how he's changing me day by day. And here I now stand in front of them. I live in front of them. I am sharing Christ in front of them. And they know me like nobody else on the planet knows me. What are they going to think of me? The book of Peter is written with suffering in mind. And Peter is encouraging those who are scattered throughout a very broad region of the world at this time in the geographical space. Some are dispersed because of persecution and some are being persecuted where they are. 
And Peter, he teaches his audience how to handle the fear and the pain and the misuse. And in this passage that we just read, Peter offers to these believers what I would call as two stabilizing principles. Two stable items to help in times of suffering and in times of trial. So I want to look into those this morning. Notice with me, number one, this thought, this stabilizing principle that Peter alludes to here, and it's found in verses 13 through 15. Who is there to harm you? Verse 14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, being ready, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you. Number one is this, rely upon grace for crisis. I like how the, the CSB chooses to translate verse 14. It, it reads it this way, just a little bit differently. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. And then that last phrase, do not fear them or be intimidated. What I'm going to do in this first point here, in this first principle, I'm going to ask a series of questions. Because Peter basically ask a few questions, but he makes some statements, and I want to frame them in such a way to help us ask these questions as we go through this first stabilizing principle here of relying upon grace for crisis. And the first question that seems to be asked, and he even asked it in verse 13, is this, who will harm you? Who is there that can harm you? I had a discussion, and I don't think they'll mind me sharing this. I was talking with one of our people here, and they're going through a situation of life, and and they brought up this, this situation and they, they called it the worst case scenarios. And they began talking with the person and saying, okay, so what is the worst case scenario for a believer? And so much of what we think about as worst case scenarios is because we're concerned about what happens here. Is if like this is all there is. And unfortunately what I feel like we've done as the church is we become enamored with living life as if this is it. And that's not what at all what the scriptures tell us. This is not my hope. I am not hoping that my world here gets better. I am looking for a city whose builder and maker is God and it is not found here. So who can harm you? But I might lose them. They might disown me. They may ostracize me. But who can really harm you? Peter's not discounting the fact that physical harm or misuse could take place. He's asking, though, who can truly harm you? Imagine the type of person or people that exists who would do you evil for doing something that is good. And oftentimes, I challenge our young people in our Christian school and in other places, let me ask you a question. If you are trying to do what is right and you are being belittled for it and you are being abused for it, then imagine what kind of a person that is. And that's the kind of people you're trying to please? Those are the people you're living for whose opinion counts. Who can really harm you? But if I share my faith in this moment, if I live out my principles of Christ's word and his, in this, I could lose my job. Who can truly harm you? And that's the question that Peter is begging. In fact, he says in verse 14 that it's an uncommon thing to suffer for doing what is right. But if that be the case, and he points out, even if that is the event that you are in, you are blessed. <laughs> you know, here's the thing. You should be happy about it. 
Okay, I don't know about you, but I am not one that likes pain. I don't like suffering. I like my air conditioning in the summertime, and I love my heat in the wintertime. I like being able to get in my car, and I have to roll the windows down. Literally, roll the windows down. Do any of you people know what a roll down the windows is anymore? I mean, we go, you know, that's the hardest thing we've got is, ooh, burning a callus on the end of my finger. And then someone says something. Someone does something to us. <laughs> and we get ruffled in our Christian featherstone. Do not fear the intimidation or be troubled. The word troubled here is the idea of carrying the idea of being shaken or disturbed or frightened. And with it, there comes this emotional implication of turmoil. Your life is now distraught because someone has done something to you. And that poses then the second question. So what is the alternative? It says in verse 15, what, what, what's your course of action? How do you handle this? Instead of being intimidated, instead of being troubled, instead of looking at this and running away from it and being concerned about it, shaken to your very fabric. So what's the alternative? And he says in verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought the first time I read it too. What, what does that mean? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Boy, that sounds really good, Peter. That will preach. I just don't know the point. Again, the word sanctify here is the way of saying to set Christ apart within your heart. It's the word sanctify. It means that it is set apart. It is the sense of being in a place that is special, uniquely gifted, and suited for the action, for the activity, for the observance, for whatever purpose that is necessary. I have set Christ apart within my heart. What does that mean? I like again how the CSB puts it, but in your hearts regard Christ as Lord, as, as, as the Lord, as holy. Regarding Christ the Lord as holy to understand something here and, and to think about what Peter is really saying, worship is what drives evangelism. If my view of God becomes in any way clouded or obscured or skewed in any way, I fail to be able to effectively tell you about him. And my heart then is not dedicated to seeing him as supreme, as holy, as uniquely. My heart dedicated to Christ. Evangelism is the bearing of the good news, being a, a message bringer to those who are without Christ that is brought about as you see the value, as you see the worth, as you begin to understand the superiority of God. Fear seeks to drive you away from the truth about God. Fear seeks to push you away from your value system. Fear says that what is important can be sacrificed on the altar of someone else's opinion. And is that how you see your salvation as something that you alone deserve and as if it only matters in this lifetime? In a manner of speaking, the fear or reverence of the Lord conquers any other fear that we may have that wants to rise up within our hearts. So if I don't fear God, then who are you replacing him with so quickly, so easily? The voices of your peers, the voices of your authorities, the voices of those who are the greater influences in your world that you seek to model and to emulate and to be like. And you're drawn to them and you're involved with their thinking and their practices of life. You're not sanctifying Christ in your heart. So when someone challenges you about your faith, you will quickly give it up. 
Oh, <laughs> that's not me. And you by fear give up the very things that you claim to value. In a manner of speaking, Peter is saying, even if, and most likely you will not, but even if you do suffer pain, happy are you, blessed. How is that? It's like what he says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10 when he wrote this, when Christ speaking in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You and I are to demonstrate the grace, the enablement of God for our own souls. And this becomes a testimony to those who bear witness to our lives. And what is being said here by Peter in verse 15 is that we are to turn everything over to Christ. Everything that's in our heart, we turn it over to him. And realizing Christ is allowing these things as a part of a sacred purpose, we hold him in reverence above all else and all others. We sanctify Christ within our hearts. So let the heathen rage. So let the wicked bring their persecution. Or just let the doubting and the suspicious, let those who are wanting to beg the question, no matter how severe or how threatening it can be, we have sanctified Christ as supreme in our heart. Can you say that's true of your heart this morning? It is like the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 8 and verse 13, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. If I'm going to fear something, let it be the very God like a father who has demonstrated a love that is unfathomable and who can understand the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God? How unsearchable are his judgments. Sanctify him in your And when we declare him to be the Lord, we are stating that God is sovereign. He is in control and not others, not even those who persecute us. It becomes our inward confidence that our Lord is aware and overseeing all the affairs on the outside of our life. And this presents a key transition in the passage as you keep moving through this chapter. He's going to then later on bring in some illustrations to this very point as examples. Peter's, he's going to give those a little bit later on in verses 18 and following. But that leads me then to the third question. The question number three is, is this, what is our response then to these unbelievers? Okay, so I've got this alternative. Now, I have sanctified Christ. He is my value system. He is most important to me. Nothing is going to change that. Nothing's going to alter that. So how then do I respond out of that kind of heart then to someone who's challenging me on the basis of my faith? So do we live in passivity? Do we just become Switzerland to the world and become very neutral in our stance? In fact, neither of those is true. Peter prompts instead us to prepare for the opportunities to bear witness of the gospel of Christ. And he goes on to say there in verse 15, of the hope that is in you. So we respond. And the language is, as he uses here, to make a ready defense. Have an answer. Give answers to people. Well, okay, well, that means... I. I i got to know something. Yes. And that comes back to what we've been admonishing our hearts. You've got to have a heart of worship. You've got to know who God is and that understanding of your relationship with Christ inside of worship. And as your worship is growing, your walk with Christ is also growing. By the way, that's called discipleship. And you're beginning to give answers to people who don't know the answers. They don't know who Christ is. Are you ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you? 
So whether it be an informal inquisition or a formal one, when accusations arise, as that verse says, always and to everyone, be ready. And by the way, that's why we do discipleship hour. That's why we have grace groups. That's why we encourage you to get one-on-one in a coffee shop somewhere or around your table in your home. Open the Word of God. Study the Word of God. Let the Word of God be there so that it is enriching your understanding of who He is, your relationship with Him, and your understanding of how you interact with each other, and that you're not alone. You need the body of Christ. And that leads us to question number four. What makes these people question? Why are they questioning these believers? Why are they accusing these believers? Because he says there is a hope that is found in you that they cannot understand. That word hope is not, oh, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, I played the lottery this week and I hope I win the $1 billion. Good luck with that. No, this is a hope based upon anticipation. I hope it's today. I know it's coming, but I sure hope it's today. Do you live with that understanding that at any moment Christ will return for his church, the body of Christ, and are you at a place in your life where you are hoping that it's today? That you are so enamored with the personal relationship and the personal promise that comes in knowing Christ that you are living in anticipation of hope. This hope that is inside of every believer was causing them to live differently on the outside. They lived distinct enough from the rest of the population around them that it brought attention to their motives as much as to their actions. So why are you choosing to do it that way? This hope, this expectation that they all shared was that one day they would be united with the person of Christ and that this Jesus was being set apart in their hearts, reverenced in their lives, and was producing a life that saw heaven as home and not this world. He had already said in chapter 2 that we are strangers. We are pilgrims. Use every opportunity to share your faith. And whether you are in a crisis moment or just in the mundane routines of life, share Christ and be ready to explain yourself. Be ready to explain why you have this joy and this hope this peace and love and a faith that is so exclusive and a God that is so wonderful. And then begs the question, number five, so how do I share it? And Peter gives us in verse 15 two words, gentleness and reverence. We're not in a debate. This is one of the things I get a little bit miffed in some of our apologetic circles is it's almost like we just want to appear witty and smarter. If I can just beat you down with my apologetics and beat you down with my theology, I have won. Did we? Did we really? It may show that we have won an argument, but we may not have won the soul. It's more about the sense of understanding that we are not in an argument with others. It carries the ideas of humility and a dependence upon the Holy Spirit to do the convincing, letting Christ do the convincing, letting the Spirit of God convince the need of that person's heart. The crisis opens the door of opportunity to share Christ, and the best answer is a life that is God-focused and above reproach. You're doing what is good. You keep doing what is good. Why are you doing this? What's your Why is your life shining so much brightness upon the conduct of my life? Why do you do what you do? And in gentleness and in reverence, we give an answer. 
I'm no better than you. This is not about a superiority question. This is not about something being more intelligent or in a sense in a place as, you know, some elitist clique or group. I just know who God is. And let me tell you about who he is and what he has done for me. And by the way, we need to be ready to open our mouths and explain our faith. And you need to understand what you believe and letting it live itself out. And the first stabilizing principle in facing times where fear may threaten our ability to bear witness of Christ is to then rely upon God's grace. Rely upon his enablement for the circumstance, for the situation, for the crisis. The emphasis of this passage is really upon being challenged in your faith. I, I think you could maybe in some ways say that this is when you come into other crisis, whether it be a health crisis or a financial crisis. Or, but I want to be very careful. That's not really what the text is talking about. You are doing what is good in the midst of being attacked for doing what is good. Are we that good? Is the church that good? Are you that kind of neighbor beside your people on your street that they look at you and say, how could you be? that good. And that's not a reflection of you. It's a reflection of Christ at work in you. Remember when I worked at the paper mill, I had a guy that made it his mission. He was going to hear me cuss before I ever left there. That was his mission. He told me, I can't wait for the day when I hear you swear. There were some third night, third shift nights. I don't remember much of any of those, but I think I made it out of there. I didn't go in there telling them I was a preacher boy. I didn't go in there telling them I didn't even knew Christ. I just went in, just do my job, and then take them along. And that's not because I'm anything great. It's just I was trying to live Christ. Are you living Christ? And if you are, sometimes just by doing what's right, people are going to push back on you. And that leads me then to the second stabilizing principle that I need to cover here at the time that we have remaining, and that is this. Second stabilizing principle that he gives us in the times when fear wants to creep up in our lives and we are curious about questioning whether or not we could let Christ just kind of be pushed to the side and I could just live in this sphere without his presence being so obvious. Not only are we to rely upon God's grace in these crisis moments, but second of all, we need to maintain a good conscience. This is not Peter saying, do as I say, but don't do as I do. This is letting life and lip match. You're putting your life where your mouth is. You're putting your reputation on the line. You're living your faith. Now, some people want to jump on topics like this and call that legalism. This is not at all what Peter's talking about. Peter is adamant about the fact that we are in Christ, and it is from this good conscience. He says there in verse 16, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, don't miss that part, they have nothing to say. This is not legalism. This is not about you maintaining, keeping, getting, hoping your salvation is secure. It has absolutely zero to do with that. It's about living out working out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is James, where he says, I'm going to tell you I have faith, that's great, but I'm going to show you by my works. I'm going to model my faith. And this is that confrontation in Peter's book. 
you claim to know Christ, prove it. Where's the evidence of it? You've got your fire assurance? Great. But what about the confrontation in the souls and the needs of others around you who need to see as much as hear about Christ? Because they can hear all kinds of messages and hear all kinds of winds of doctrine, but there doesn't ever seem to be anything that is truly radical or life-changing, and that's where Christ can only afford that. This is going to demand more of you than just keeping your outside looking good or moral. You understand in our churches, we teach and we preach the excellence of God. And not that we believe that we will achieve it in this lifetime. We understand that in this encasement of flesh, we'll never get to that level. But understanding that we are day by day dependent upon Christ to strengthen us and enable us to live a godly existence inside a very sin-filled world. Over in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says this in verses 3 and 4, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his glory. And I want you to hold on to that verse for just a minute. Look at what he's saying there. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And this comes about by the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And then he goes on in verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. So why is it that the church just doesn't really look very different from the world? If we have escaped the world's system of thinking, why is it that we are doing everything in our power to look like them? You say, well, in what ways? Anything that contradicts a true, clear understanding of the character and the person of Jesus Christ. So what in your life is a contradiction? Wayne Grudem in his commentary on 1 Peter, he offers two ways that we can maintain a, a sense of excellence He makes this one, he makes, first of all, he says, avoid any conscious or willful disobedience to God throughout each and every day. God's word says that this is how I should conduct my life. Ah, you know what? I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm going to choose to do it this way. That's sin? That's wrong? That's not beneficial? Yeah, okay, you're you're still God's child, but there comes this point when you've got a question mark going, who's... Who are you really, whose name, reputation are you really living for? Have you set apart Christ in your heart? And then he offers a second way. He says, you need to continue to practice immediate repentance and pray depending upon the forgiveness of God which cleanses from all sin. This is 1 John 1. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And by the way, that's for a Christian. That's for a believer. That's not for an unregenerate person. That's for us. It's an understanding that we keep our accounts short. We recognize where our hearts are wandering, where we are not sanctifying Christ. We are letting the things of this world become more and more the population of our heart's thoughts and mindset. We are distracted by what's going on around us in the world. Is it any wonder then where we feel? That word in Christianity is such a, ooh, that's a hard word. And, you know, we don't feel close to God. I, I don't feel saved. 
Salvation is based upon an act that Jesus Christ did for you. Have you trusted in that act? Love is the activity of Christ at work inside of you. The Holy Spirit nurturing you, guiding you. Are you keeping your love language in affection to him? In any relationship, when one is doing all the work and the other one is just over here distracted, do you ever get to the place where you begin to wonder the basis, the purpose, the intent, the longevity of the relationship? You don't feel connected. No, because you're not behaving connected. Repentance is a change of mind about things that you know God has said. This is wrong. This is sin. Don't do that. How do we be, function and behave inside of Christ working in our hearts, behaving in our lives, letting that then be what comes out from us? What are some of the benefits that we find in Scripture of keeping our consciences clear before God? It's like what he says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, that our prayer life is more effective. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22, that we maintain a confidence in our access to God in worship. It's not that we can't come to God in worship. It's just that when sin is crowding out the, the, the way, the plan, the path that God has for our life, we don't feel welcomed. Well, whose fault is that? And even in this passage in 1 Peter 3, Peter is staying, stating that our ability to witness that those who are even abusing us are going to be put to shame by our response and by our good behavior. Even by those who verbally abuse you. It's an interesting phrase that he says, they speak evil of you. They are verbally abusing you. You still let Christ be sanctified in your heart. There's another phrase that those who falsely accuse you indicates an insulting, a, a threatening speech. There's slander. You still sanctify Christ in your heart and you still respond out of gentleness and the behavior of the believer that's spoken of here is a pattern of life. You maintain this good conscience. You live this good behavior. The hope in this passage isn't to put to shame those who abuse you or simply to silence them with your witty comebacks. The goal is to open their heart to the gospel. In verse 17, he says, it is better to suffer for doing well than for doing evil. And later on after this verse, Peter includes verse 18 where he uses the example of Christ as someone who suffered unjustly. And look at the opportunity that that suffering has given to the world to understand the compassion of the Father. And in one sense, Peter is stating that we are suffering to lead someone into an understanding of salvation. And although we bear no sins as Christ did upon the cross, the example that Peter is going to give there in verse 18 is a strong encouragement to us to be willing to suffer so that it might lead someone to Christ who did suffer for their sins. The suffering is better than just getting what we deserve for any wrongdoing that we have done. And as a believer, you and I are revealers of darkened hearts. But a good conscience will help us to withstand the false accusations. Someone has described the conscience as a window a window lets the light in, and a conscience lets the light of God's word in. Persistent disobedience is sort of like throwing mud upon the window panes. It begins to obscure the effectiveness of the light penetrating in our hearts, and our conscience in the same way can become defiled as we continue to become enamored with sin in our life. We are obscuring the perfectness of his word in our life. A good conscience removes from us fear because we have confidence in the truth, and the truth is what makes us free. 
The conscience is only a guide and is only safe to listen to if we're allowing the light of God's word and letting the truth that comes from it to teach us more than just experiences or even from those who are even the so-called experts. In times of adversity, his grace is sufficient. His truth opens our minds to the knowledge that we need to withstand the trial to be able to proclaim the gospel. So what is there to fear in suffering? What are you afraid of? It's hard. It doesn't make it wrong. But you don't know what they've said. And what did you say back? You don't know how they treated me. And has that changed your behavior? Are you still sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart? Or is someone else there? Something else there? Is it any wonder then that there's confusion even in your own heart about how you should behave and how you should respond? Who can harm you? Threaten me with heaven, why don't you? It's the understanding then that even in this life, even though it's hard, we still have the knowledge that he is at work and that we are given opportunity in the midst of crisis to open the hearts and the minds of people to not only just hear, but to see the gospel at work, and it's in you. Are you living out the good news of Jesus Christ? Let's stand together for a word of prayer. Father, I pray as we think about the answers that we give, are we living with hope? Are we living with anticipation? Are we living with heaven in mind? Or have we become so earthly enamored that, Lord, we are no spiritual good to the cause of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to suffer well, suffer in the sense of opportunity and crisis to be able to share of the gospel. And whether that's because we got a diagnosis or whether that's because someone has walked across the street and literally slugged us in the face. Is it because of what we are doing that is good? Or is it just because we are just as guilty of the sin in our own heart as that person is? Lord, how do we respond in these moments? Is it in gentleness and reverence because you are sanctified in our heart and we serve you? Lord, let there not be fear even in the midst of hardship and suffering. Lord, I pray for those who are around the world today, some very much hidden away, some who have come out of their homes to share boldly even in the threat of their own life, Lord, we pray for the church that is being oppressed, the church that is being persecuted. But Lord, what if that were to happen in the United States of America? Would there be a strong enough church in America that could still function and behave out of a good conscience, out of a heart that has you sanctified in it, that we would still share our faith and live our faith because it is you that is more important than any political regime, or any oppressive law, or anything that would take us away from serving you in the days that we have, whether we suffer. Lord, let us be a people that are called by your name to represent you well. And so speak to our hearts this morning, and may we serve you. In Christ's name we pray. Take my life and let it be 
for our time together, for our time in the word. Help us to fear only you, Lord, for what harm can come to us. We thank you that we have the opportunity to share your word. Help us to be bold in our witness, Lord, and courageous. For we have you on our side and we know we've won the victory already. So thank you, Lord, for that. Give us uh, that boldness this week, Lord, in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We invite you to uh, join us in the fellowship hall for a brief time of uh, fellowship and then our discipleship classes start about 11 o'clock. Lord bless you.